0: Chapter 4, Part 2, The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003, of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 4, Part 2, The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003 securing the lines of communications. As the sandstorm subsided on March 27th, Task Force Tarawa was reinforced by two Marine Expeditionary Units, or MEUs, and began to clear and secure Nasiriyah, destroying Iraqi military and paramilitary bases in the city. By April 2nd, The Marines and Special Operations Forces had rescued the surviving 507th Maintenance Company soldiers captured on March 23rd, and Natansky declared the city secure. First MEF then split, with a small element moving toward Amara and the main body continuing northwest toward Baghdad. The 101st Airborne Division, meanwhile, conducted deep aviation attacks against the Republican Guard Medina Division in an operation incorporating lessons learned from the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment's failure. The 3rd Infantry Division continued north toward Najaf and prepared to isolate that shrine city before seizing the bridge over the Euphrates at the town of Kifl between Najaf and Hilla. On March 28th, 5th Corps was ready to launch a five-pronged attack to clear the way for the eventual entry into Baghdad. The 1st and 2nd Brigades of the 101st Airborne Division went to Najaf to secure the highways leading north from the city, and then began clearing the city itself along with the 2nd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, and special operations teams in the area, while one brigade of the 101st conducted a feint toward Hilla. The brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division moved into Samawa with the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, relieving the 3rd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, and then began clearing the city as McKiernan had directed. Between March 28th and 30th, the 3rd Infantry Division handed over the fights in Najaf and Samawa to the 101st and 82nd, respectively, and then moved north to prepare for operations to isolate Baghdad. On March 31st and April 1st, the 3rd Infantry Division seized the bridge between Hilla and Karbala with the 3rd Squadron, 7th Cavalry, while 3rd Brigade 3rd Infantry Division cleared the all-important Karbala gap. Two incidents of note occurred as the 3rd Infantry Division moved through the Karbala Gap. As the division's troops neared Karbala, they captured Iraqi soldiers claiming to be from the Republican Guard Nebuchadnezzar Division, which CFLCC had not detected as it moved south and still believed to be fighting in northern Iraq. Although these soldiers initially were thought to be deserters, interrogations revealed they had been ordered south to defend the capital, But instead of moving with their tanks and mechanized vehicles, they had donned civilian clothes and moved in trucks and technical vehicles. As a result, 5th Corps deduced that the Republican Guard presence around Baghdad might be more robust than the coalition anticipated. Another incident was still more disturbing. On March 29th, when 3rd Infantry Division soldiers stopped a taxi for inspection at a checkpoint, the vehicle exploded, the coalition's first encounter with a suicide car bomb. Though it was the only incident of its type at the time, it had a jarring psychological impact on U.S. units and proved to be the first of many such encounters in the months and years to come. The Battle for Haditha Dam The sandstorm did not halt the special operations activities in Anbar province. During March 26th and 27th, Elements of the 75th Ranger Regiment seized the Qadassiya Research Center, an airfield near Nuqaib in southwest Iraq, and the H-1 airfield. Having secured these essential points of entry, the rangers' focus shifted to critical western infrastructure targets which included the main bridge over the Euphrates at Ramadi and the Haditha Dam. Although in poor condition, the dam provided one-third of Iraq's electrical power and regulated the flow of the Euphrates. If it was destroyed by Saddam's forces, subsequent flooding could devastate the lower Euphrates River Valley, potentially hampering Fifth Corps' movement through the Karbala Gap. On April 1st, a company of the 3rd Battalion 75th Ranger Regiment conducted a pre-dawn raid to seize the dam, meeting stiff resistance from local Iraqi guards. Soon after seizing the dam, the rangers realized a much larger Iraqi force was stationed in the area. Over the following week, Iraqi troops mounted counterattacks against the small ranger force, which beat back the attackers with the help of close air support. The rangers also faced an unexpected emerging threat. In an incident on April 4th, three rangers were killed by a suicide car bomb driven by female attackers who had made videotapes prior to the suicide mission and aired them on the Al Jazeera television network with the message that they intended to wage jihad to expel the Americans from Iraq. As they turned back successive Iraqi attacks, the rangers actually found themselves engaged in another battle to prevent the dam from collapsing. Poor maintenance had caused its turbines and overflow machinery to deteriorate to such a degree that the dam was close to catastrophic failure at the time the rangers seized it, even as many of the dam workers fled to avoid the fighting. Recognizing the danger the Rangers and civil affairs personnel persuaded the captured dam superintendent that the U.S. troops did not intend to destroy the dam and convinced him and many of the remaining dam workers to return to work. By the time Baghdad fell on April 9th, Haditha Dam was secure, albeit still in need of repair. Kirkuk and Operation Viking Hammer While the Rangers seized the Haditha Dam, Cleveland's CJSOTF-N was linking up with the Kurds and receiving Mayville's 173rd Airborne Brigade under its tactical control. Executing a combat jump into a secured airfield in northern Iraq on March 26th, the 173rd provided Cleveland with additional combat power that could take and hold ground as special operations and Peshmerga forces advanced on Kirkuk. Elsewhere to the northeast, the 3rd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group began Operation Viking Hammer to remove Ansar al-Islam from its base in Iraqi Kurdistan. With PUK Peshmerga helping the 3rd Battalion move to its targets, the special operators estimated the Ansar al-Islam sites at Halabja and Sharkat contained approximately 700 fighters and a suspected biological warfare development site. Special Operations Forces and PUK Peshmerga commenced the main attack on March 28th a week after 64 Tomahawk missiles had first hit the Ansar al-Islam building and facilities. The fighting continued until March 30th, by which time all the Ansar al-Islam fighters had either been killed or fled across the border to Iran. It would be far from the last time the coalition would hear from this terrorist group. The Regime Falls Page 95 securing Baghdad and Basra. While the 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions cleared the 5th Corps lines of communications, 1st MEF finished clearing Nasiriyah and moved along the east side of the CFLCC area of operations toward Duwania. A growing problem was that Highway 8, which ran through Duanea, was in the 5th Corps area of operations and not occupied by any army units, thereby creating an area 80 kilometers wide that was a virtual Fedayeen sanctuary. Alerted to Fedayeen who were massing in Duanea, 5th Corps called in an airstrike that destroyed a stadium in the city where the Fedayeen were gathering, after which CFLCC ordered marine units to secure and clear the city. On March 31st, CFLCC ordered 1st MEF to attack east along Highway 6 toward Amara to provide a second clear line into Kut. From April 2nd to 3rd, the 1st Marine Division crossed the Tigris River at Nemania, destroyed what remained of the Baghdad Republican Guard Division, and moved north to destroy the Nida Division. Back on the Euphrates, 5th Corps used the 3rd Squadron, 7th Cavalry and the 101st Airborne Division to reconnoiter enemy forces along the Corps' western flank and the southwest side of Karbala Lake. From April 1st to 2nd, units of the 3rd Infantry Division crossed through the Karbala Gap, the last checkpoint at which they were vulnerable before approaching Baghdad. The 3rd Infantry Division then began destroying the remnants of the Medina Division and seized the al qaeda Bridge. With assistance from special operations teams, the 101st Airborne Division moved into Hilla and began to clear and secure that city. Iraqi commanders discerned the coalition's main effort too late. On April 1st, as 5th Corps forces were moving on Karbala, Hamdani recognized that he had little with which to stop the 5th Corps' push through the Karbala Gap and the Marine advance at Kut. As the Marines successfully moved through Kut, the Iraqi Army 4th Corps collapsed, and the central Euphrates-based units were in a similar state of disarray. In an emergency meeting of the senior Iraqi military leaders on April 2nd, Hamdani asked for permission to move the Republican Guard Nida and Medina divisions to defend avenues of approach to Baghdad along the east and west banks of the Euphrates. Kusei and Defense Minister General Sultan Hashim, however, conveyed Saddam's continued belief in the need to defend against the supposed American main effort from Jordan, and, based on information he received from Russian sources, the Iraqi dictator did not believe the Americans would attack Baghdad until the arrival of the 4th Infantry Division. Therefore, Kusey instead ordered the NIDA Division to reinforce the Republican Guard First Corps' defenses against an American attack from Jordan that would not be coming. By April 3, CFLCC was ready to begin the attack on Baghdad. The 3rd Infantry Division had safely pushed through the Karbala Gap and was prepared to advance toward the Baghdad airport, while 1st MEF had crossed the Saddam Canal and was prepared to advance toward Baghdad from the southeast. Using remnants of the Medina Division, Hamdani attempted a counterattack on the morning of April 3rd to destroy the al qaeda bridge, but coalition airpower quickly decimated the attacking Iraqi units. With no forces left at his disposal, Hamdani gave up, quitting his post and returning to a relative's house in Baghdad to await the inevitable. Seizing Saddam International Airport On the western outskirts of Baghdad, Saddam had designated a brigade of the Special Republican Guard and a contingent of Special Operations Forces to defend the airport. The Special Republican Guard was the final vanguard defending Baghdad. It was also Saddam's most substantial armored force, armed with the country's most powerful and best-maintained T-72 tanks and artillery systems. As coalition forces advanced toward the airport, Saddam ordered some of the paramilitary fighters assigned to the defense of Baghdad to reinforce the units at SIAP, but most of these forces were destroyed by coalition aircraft before they reached the gate leading to the airfield. The 3rd Infantry Division began its attack on SIAP with preparatory artillery fires late on the evening of April 3rd. By 11pm, 3rd Infantry Division units had breached the airport wall and in the early hours of April 4th, the division's 1st Brigade began securing the airport itself, taking considerable time to clear the obstacles the Iraqis had emplaced on the airfield to make it unusable for coalition aircraft. In conjunction with members of a Special Operations Task Force, the division began clearing the remaining Special Republican Guard and paramilitary forces on the airfield, a process that required two days because of the complex tunnel and bunker systems the defenders had prepared. The securing of the airport involved some intense fighting. In one instance, troops from Company B 11th Engineer Battalion had come under attack by a force of up to 100 enemy soldiers as they constructed a holding area for Iraqi prisoners. Under intense fire, Sergeant 1st Class Paul R. Smith, an engineer platoon sergeant, organized a hasty defense. When an armored personnel carrier was hit, Smith evacuated three wounded soldiers while under intense fire. He then returned to use the vehicle's 50 caliber machine gun and killed up to 50 of the attackers before being mortally wounded. For his actions, Smith was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously, becoming the first recipient of that award since 1993. With SIAP under the 3rd Infantry Division's control, the 2nd Brigade moved toward Baghdad from the west and southwest and, by April 5th, was in a position from which its commander, Colonel David G. Perkins, intended to conduct armored raids into the city. Basra. While the 3rd Infantry Division and the 1st MEF prepared to attack into Baghdad, the British 1st Armored Division completed its efforts to secure Basra far to the south. The British commanders approached the operations to secure Basra much as they had secured Zubair. As with Zubair, they were reluctant to enter Basra until conditions were right to capture the city. Using a combination of information acquired from tribal and municipal leaders from the city and targeting information provided by Special Operations Forces, the British forces prepared to enter the city using a combination of lethal and non-lethal means. On April 4th, they conducted an airstrike on the suspected location of Ali Hassan al-Majid's, or dubbed Chemical Ali for his use of chemical weapons in attacks against the Kurds, headquarters, which, while unsuccessful, had a dramatic effect on the population of Basra. Believing Chemical Ali to be dead, the population appeared to become more willing to cooperate. By the time the British 1st Armored Division began conducting reconnaissance missions into the city on the morning of April 6th, British units had encountered no resistance. The division commander, Major General Robin Brims, decided to go into the city in force and attacked into Basra from three directions as coalition aircraft carried out precision airstrikes on the remaining Bath Command targets. By the morning of April 7th, Basra was under British control. The Thunder Runs Wallace's intent for Baghdad was to, quote, avoid owning the city but yet still be able to control it from the outside, end quote. He intended to establish bases outside the city and conduct armored raids against enemy targets inside Baghdad for approximately 30 days, after which he expected the remaining Iraqi leadership would capitulate. The 5th Corps planners believed they could target Baghdad's key nodes in a manner that would limit collateral damage but expeditiously facilitate the final collapse of the regime. Their targets included Ba'ath Party headquarters, symbolic regime structures, and Saddam's numerous palaces and offices, all sites that CFACC repeatedly had bombarded for two weeks. Wallace originally wanted the 3rd Infantry Division to probe into the city with brigade strength to evaluate the Iraqi response and prepare for follow-on operations. Thus, he expected that when the division's 2nd Brigade received the order to prepare for the first of these armored raids into Baghdad on April 5th, they would return rather than remain somewhere in the city by themselves. Major General Buford C. Buff Blount, the division commander, had a somewhat different view Having encountered little coherent Iraqi defense on the approach to Baghdad, Blount preferred to keep his brigades moving and attack through Baghdad rather than merely probe it. Blount and Perkins thus set out to conduct what amounted to a movement to contact into the city, and attack the unit dubbed a Thunder Run. For his part, Perkins defined his task as, "...to enter Baghdad for the purpose of displaying combat power, to destroy enemy forces, and to simply show them that we can." As had been the case with other Iraqi cities, the attacking coalition units had no detailed breakdown of the enemy forces they could expect to face in Baghdad. Pre-war intelligence estimates anticipated the city was defended by company-sized units of Special Republican Guard as well as paramilitary forces. These forces, the coalition believed, would anchor their defense at Saddam's palace complex in central Baghdad, which was surrounded by outer sectors of defense reminiscent of the First Battle of Grozny. What the 2nd Brigade encountered instead as it moved into the city on April 5th was a hodgepodge of uncoordinated attacks by different groups of Iraqi defenders, some in uniform, some in civilian clothes, and some in jihadi-type black pajamas, as coalition troops dubbed them. The 3rd Infantry Division suspected the Fedayeen were running the fight along with other miscellaneous paramilitary forces and uniformed Special Republican Guard soldiers. On the morning of April 5th, from its position at the intersection of Highway 1 and Highway 8, just north of Mahmoudia, the 2nd Brigade moved north on Highway 8 through the southwest Baghdad district of Rashid, encountering heavy fire from the uncoordinated regime paramilitaries as it went. Repelling one lightly armed group of attackers after another, Perkins's men penetrated into West Baghdad and turned west on the airport road later known to the coalition as Route Irish. Moving through a series of ambushes, the brigade arrived at the airport and linked up with the other 3rd Infantry Division units there. The regime's response to the 2nd Brigade's attack was to claim that it had not happened. Despite the fact that media outlets had reported video of the thunder run, Baghdad's Information Minister, Mohammed Saeed al Sahaf derisively called Baghdad Bob by the coalition, insisted on television that there were no U.S. forces in Baghdad and claimed that the 3rd Infantry Division attack on the airport had been repelled. Wallace and McKiernan were concerned that this disinformation campaign would only harden the forces that were defending in Baghdad and could potentially cause 5th Corps and 1st MEF to lose the initiative in the city. Linking up with other 3rd Infantry Division units at SIAP, Perkins reported that in his judgment, the remaining enemy forces in the city would fight hard but could, quote, no longer mount effective resistance, end quote, a conclusion that validated Blount's instincts to press the attack. Elsewhere, Mattis, whose marines were closing in on Baghdad from the east, also believed that pulling back from the city would constitute a, quote, forfeiture of the initiative to the Iraqis, end quote, and would allow Saddam to, quote, thicken, end quote, the defense of Baghdad. In order to fully isolate Baghdad and protect 2nd Brigade's forays, Blount ordered his 3rd Brigade, commanded by Colonel Daniel B. Allen, to attack across the western flank of the city and seize key bridges to its north. After fighting through elements of the Hammurabi Republican Guard Division as well as Fedayeen forces, Allen had taken the bridges and sealed off Baghdad by the evening of April 6th. Iraqi forces, desperate to break through, attacked 3rd Brigade for the next 60 hours straight sending tanks, Russian infantry fighting vehicles or BMPs, infantry, bridging vehicles, and even a crane in massed wave assaults. The attacks resulted in some of the most intense fighting of the invasion, with nearly overrun units calling in their final protective fires and artillery units firing in direct fire mode, actions that had not occurred since the Vietnam War. Despite the onslaught, Allen's brigade held, buying time for the remainder of the division to continue its assault into Baghdad. With 3rd Brigade blocking Iraqi reinforcements from the north and preventing units trapped in Baghdad from escaping, Perkins and Blount made plans for another thunder run to occupy the regime's central node in downtown Baghdad and stay there overnight. Wallace was concerned about the plan to remain in the city, as he did not believe the division or his corps was ready for the move into Baghdad, but he authorized Blount to send forces on the same route through Baghdad and occupy ground for several hours before withdrawing. However, Perkins never received these instructions, so when his brigade attacked into the city again on April 7th, they advanced back into the central Baghdad government center, later the Green Zone, including Saddam's iconic crossed swords military parade ground, and stayed there. Wallace was surprised when Blount confirmed reports that 2nd Brigade alone had occupied the center of Baghdad, but decided not to pull Perkins and his troops out. Though the brigade ran low on fuel and its brigade command post was hit by a surface-to-surface missile causing heavy casualties, Perkins was adamant about remaining in position. The 1st Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, meanwhile, sustained heavy fire from what it believed were foreign fighters as it attacked to secure overpasses south of the city and support the 2nd Brigade. The supporting attack, along with continued coalition airstrikes, enabled Perkins and his troops to remain on the ground they had seized at the very heart of the regime's territory. The Fall of the Regime as the 3rd Infantry Division brigades penetrated through West Baghdad, Mattis and his 1st Marine Division crossed the Tigris River on April 6th and 7th and attacked into the east side of the city, encountering intense fighting but linking up with 3rd Infantry Division units on April 8th. The little Iraqi resistance that continued was disorganized and sporadic. On April 10th, Allen's 3rd Brigade launched an attack south into Baghdad, linking up with Perkins's 2nd Brigade. As those two brigades joined forces with Mattis's marines, virtually all resistance in Baghdad collapsed, and the Ba'athist regime lost control of its capital. Iraqis began celebrating in the streets and, in one memorable celebration, encouraged U.S. forces to topple an iconic statue of Saddam in Firdos Square on the east side of the city. Amid the chaotic situation and with two American divisions in Baghdad, Saddam made one final public appearance in the Sunni neighborhood of Adhamiyah on April 9th, walking through a crowd of supporters in front of Arabic television cameras. As U.S. Marines and tanks approached the neighborhood, Saddam quit the capital, becoming a fugitive whom U.S. forces did not see again until December 13th, 2003. In retrospect, Hamdani judged that, had it not been for what he termed the, quote, extreme caution, end quote, of the American forces as they approached Baghdad from Abu Ghraib, Baghdad might have fallen as early as April 5th. By the time U.S. units reached Baghdad, most of the Republican Guard units responsible for the outer defenses of the city had collapsed, and all of the corps and division headquarters were destroyed. Many of the remaining paramilitary forces tasked to defend the city, including the Fedayeen and some, quote, special security and protection forces, end quote, were sent to their deaths at the battle for SIAP instead. Thus, little organized military resistance remained in the city apart from Saddam's personal guard. Even he knew the end was near. From an obscure residence in Mansour, he ordered his remaining militia and irregular forces to make a last-ditch attempt to stall the coalition, which they did by attacking the 3rd Infantry Division's armored raids on April 7th and 8th. Chemical Ali, meanwhile, made a failed attempt to organize officers to carry out suicide bombings against the American mechanized vehicles. As the statue of Saddam fell, the remaining Iraqi security forces donned civilian clothes and faded into anonymity. The near-simultaneous collapse of Basra and Baghdad, two of Iraq's three largest cities, along with Saddam's abrupt departure was greeted at CENTCOM and CFLCC as the effective destruction of the regime. However, these events in Baghdad and the south eclipsed the fact that Mosul and the upper Tigris Valley remained under enemy control. Several days elapsed before a small contingent of special operations forces from CJSOTFN n and Peshmerga arrived in Mosul to announce the fall of the regime. For the moment, at least, the future hub of the Sunni insurgency was, in the coalition's thinking, an afterthought. A Validation of the RMA? Page 103 Despite facing unexpectedly tenacious irregular Iraqi defense in southern Iraq, U.S. and coalition forces succeeded in forcing regime change in just under three weeks, far ahead of the 70 to 120 days the invasion plan envisioned. Forced to adapt quickly to several unexpected factors, coalition units had used rapid maneuver and overwhelming firepower to destroy the sizable Iraqi security and intelligence forces in less than a month. The invasion showcased some successful innovations in joint and combined arms operations, but also highlighted flaws in intelligence, aviation deep attacks, and the risks associated with unsecured urban centers along maneuver lines of communications. The invasion also marked one of the largest, if not the largest, special forces operations in history— involving almost all of Air Force Special Operations Command, two Special Forces groups, and part of a third group, a Naval Special Warfare group, and International Special Operations elements from the United Kingdom and Poland. For the bulk of the invasion, combat operations remained largely compartmentalized between Special Operations and conventional forces, with each having mostly separate missions, terrain, and key tasks. On the surface the Special Operations Forces component of the invasion appeared to validate pre-existing expectations of those forces' capabilities. With a comparatively small number of troops, Special Operations Forces completed all of their tasks except locating the non-existent Scud launch points in western and northern Iraq and supported conventional force efforts to identify and destroy Iraqi irregular forces. However, Special operations forces faced significant challenges in Haditha and Kirkuk in seizing and holding terrain by themselves. Eventually, those cities would have to be occupied by larger, conventional military units. Assuming risk in the urban areas was a problem that neither exercises nor simulations identified ahead of time. CFLCC V 5th Corps, and 1st MEF, however, were able to rapidly reallocate their forces, adjust their plans, and employ the reserve force to manage that difficulty during the operational pause provided by the mother-of-all sandstorms. At the same time, the deep attack that had served as a standard pre-war winning move in simulations against peer military forces simply did not work in Iraq. The dismal failure of the first scheduled deep aviation attack against the Medina Division of the Republican Guard made the CFLCC and 5th Corps commanders reluctant to use attack aviation in future shaping operations. When aviation assets were used to support light or mechanized infantry in combined arms operations to secure the lines of communications and key objectives for the remainder of the invasion, those operations were very successful. In the aftermath of the invasion... Advocates of the Revolution in Military Affairs, or RMA, pronounced the rapid coalition attack to Baghdad validated the RMA's contentions that speed and technological superiority would supplant mass and firepower in contemporary military operations and render large ground forces less relevant. Among the RMA advocates, Rumsfeld himself hailed the invasion as, quote, an unprecedented combination of speed, precision, surprise, and flexibility, end quote. Speaking before the Senate Armed Services Committee three months after the fall of the Iraqi regime, Rumsfeld told the senators that the principal military lessons of the invasion included, quote, the importance of speed and the ability to get inside the enemy's decision cycle and strike before he is able to mount a coherent defense, end quote, as well as the importance of jointness, intelligence, and precision, with the latter defined as, quote, the ability to deliver devastating damage to enemy positions while sparing civilian lives and the civilian infrastructure End quote." He also posited that the invasion had shown that quote, "In the 21st century, overmatching power is more important than overwhelming force. In the past, under the doctrine of overwhelming force, force tended to be measured in terms of mass, the number of troops that were committed to a particular conflict. In the 21st century, mass may no longer be the best measure of power in a conflict. After all, when Baghdad fell, there were just over 100,000 American forces on the ground. General Franks overwhelmed the enemy not with the typical three-to-one advantage in mass, but by overmatching the enemy with advanced capabilities and using those capabilities in innovative and unexpected ways. End quote. It was certainly true that the invading coalition forces had displayed an impressive flexibility in their operations, as Rumsfeld and other RMA advocates noted. But more importantly, the invasion highlighted some of the shortcomings of U.S. military intelligence and the associated precision of coalition operations. The pre-war intelligence estimates failed to anticipate the role of Saddam's irregular forces sufficiently, and the coalition intelligence apparatus had difficulty absorbing the enormous volume of information at its disposal and analyzing new information outside their pre-made templates of Iraqi regime forces. In reality, the enemy did not behave much like the coalition planners, psychological operations specialists, and intelligence analysts expected. Although airstrikes and the rapid coalition advance demoralized segments of the Iraqi military, widespread capitulations did not occur. Nor did coalition forces see the, quote, massed tank battles, end quote, they expected from the Republican Guard. Saddam did not use chemical weapons as coalition forces advanced on Baghdad, and the bulk of the resistance in southern Iraq came from Iraq's irregular forces, the Fedayeen in particular, rather than the Iraqi army and Republican Guard. From the first engagement with the Fedayeen, Ba'ath Party militias, and other paramilitary forces, intelligence personnel across CFLCC had difficulty comprehending the true enemy picture. This placed the responsibility for understanding and targeting the enemy almost entirely on the shoulders of the maneuver units and special operations forces in contact. Assets that were supposed to provide real-time tactical targeting information, for example, Joint Surveillance Target Attack Radar System, or JSTARS, UAVs, and national-level platforms, were often focused on large Iraqi mechanized formations, forcing the coalition divisions to rely on the more traditional cavalry squadrons, long-range surveillance units, and special operations forces for reconnaissance and surveillance against paramilitary forces. In short, It was an exact reversal of the late 1990s trend which Rumsfeld and RMA advocates had encouraged toward technological platforms and away from combined arms reconnaissance units that could fight for information. When put to the test, the technological platforms were found wanting. The lessons Rumsfeld and RMA advocates took from the invasion also tended to ignore the simple fact that the Iraqi regime was a weak enemy whose leaders struggled to mount a coherent defense and that this factor might have played a larger role in the apparent ease of the coalition invasion than the coalition's own advanced technological capabilities. For example, A lengthy 2007 report by Stephen Biddle of the U.S. Army War College found that the Iraqi military had performed exceptionally poorly in March to April 2003, and that the coalition advance was not so speedy that the Iraqis could not have taken advantage of some significant opportunities had they been a fully competent force. The Iraqis had, among other things, failed to flood the Karbala Gap or destroy bridges to slow down the coalition use the Republican Guard in an urban warfare environment to inflict coalition casualties, conduct a scorched-earth campaign, or even competently perform simple gunnery and hit close coalition targets. If the coalition's easy victory rested on Iraqi military incompetence, Biddle concluded, then the supposed lessons of the new importance of speed and precision might not apply to a future conflict against a more competent enemy, as Rumsfeld had implied. Within the Iraqi regime and military, years of preparing to wage war against Iran or an internal insurgency left Iraqi forces ill-prepared for a coalition onslaught. Saddam's overconfidence in the abilities of his forces, fed by years of demanding only positive information about them, caused him and his inner circle to make military decisions far removed from what their operational commanders observed or requested. Although some Iraqi conventional and unconventional forces mounted energetic defenses of Iraq's southern cities and key terrain, they never gained the initiative. Select Iraqi units were able to mount some tactical counterattacks near Nasiriyah, Samawa, Kut, Najaf, Hilla, and the Karbala Gap, but at no point did the Iraqi forces have sufficient command and control or combat power to conduct an operational-level counterattack. In reality, the Iraqi regime and its military... Never stood a chance. End of Chapter 4, Part 2 The Invasion of Iraq, March to April 2003. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.